Well, it was really a great joy to be able to sing with all of you this morning. Uh, thank you to Michael and the team for uh, leading us so well into the very throne room of God to worship him and to uh, just recite these precious truths to our own souls uh, so that this truth gets deeper into us, so it's more integrated into our hearts. And I uh, just took note of that, that last verse that we sang of Jesus I my cross have taken. Uh, soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer uh, to praise. And things just fit so well with the theme that we're talking about this weekend. I mean, we don't often think of ourselves as pilgrims, sojourners, uh, just temporary travelers, nomads even. Uh, this is just a temporary stay here on earth. We're just passing through and soon we'll arrive at our eternal home. And I think if we have that mindset, it's going to drastically change uh, how we spend our time on this uh, short journey on earth. So we're going to continue talking about this all-important topic of heaven and hell. And uh, we began last night on a high note. Our, our hearts soared as we uh, entered into the heights of heaven. But then today... We're going to sink down into the depths of hell. And uh, hell is certainly not a very pleasant topic to discuss. Uh, this is uh, certainly something that I come to with, with fear and trepidation, something that I don't take lightly. I mean, hell is just a, a frightening and, and terrifying topic. And if you're not scared at the idea of hell, then you're probably not thinking about it correctly. Uh, perhaps an illustration from Dante's Inferno will set the right tone for us. Uh, this book, The Inferno, written by Dante, is a fictional work, and as a work of fiction, it contains a lot of unbiblical ideas about hell, uh, extra-biblical ideas. They're not in the Bible, so Dante's using his imagination, but certainly there are some things that are biblical in this book. And what happens in this book is Dante, who's the, the narrator and the, the author of the book, is taken on this imaginary tour through hell. And he sees all the horrific features of hell. But before he's taken on this tour, at the very beginning, he stands at the gateway to hell. And inscribed on this gate are the words, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. You see, there is a day when hope ends. Uh, there is a day where there is no longer a chance no longer the opportunity to cling to Jesus Christ, who is the only hope of the world. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. See, there's a time where 
the Lord will not be found. Or he will not be near. And for the non-Christian, that is the day that they enter through the gateway of hell. And they can abandon their hope because there is no more. So what is this place, this horrible, horrible place called hell? Now let me start with a definition given by Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He writes that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. So let's focus in on a few parts of that definition. First of all, hell is a place. It's an actual place. It's not a state of mind. It's not a figure of speech, but an actual place. Secondly, hell is punishment. It is condemnation for sin. Uh, It is your just compensation for your sin, for breaking God's laws. And then third, this punishment will be endured consciously. You're fully awake, fully alive, fully conscious to endure this painful punishment that you face in hell. So hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. But not everyone agrees with this definition. Uh, There has been pushback, especially in recent years, on this traditional biblical view of hell. Uh, Today, many view hell as the great scarecrow of Christianity, something that preachers used in yesteryear to scare people and to keep the people in the pews in line and to frighten people into making professions of faith. But today, we're smarter, right? Today's society, we know that this argument about hell is simply made of straw, Let me give you a few examples of what people are saying today. Uh, The first uh, is a belief in universalism. And you're familiar with that. It says that everyone is saved in the end. Yes, there is a heaven and a hell, but everyone will make their way to heaven. All roads lead to God in heaven. The Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, even the atheist. All those paths will lead to heaven. Everyone will be saved in the end. Another alternative view of the biblical doctrine of hell is annihilationism. And this says that sometimes, sometime after your death, you are simply gone. You simply cease to exist. After you die, poof! You're gone. You're annihilated. You're like the flame of a candle that is snuffed out. Uh, You simply cease to exist. You're no longer conscious, no longer aware, no longer thinking. Your soul simply vanishes. You are annihilated. And various forms of this are trendy in Christianity right now because it's so much more palatable, right? Uh, So much less offensive than the biblical view of hell. And so Christians, knowing that they can't completely dismiss the doctrine of hell, knowing they can't completely throw out the window, have come up with this more palatable alternative to hell. Yes, you get eternally punished, but your eternal punishment is that you eternally cease to exist. And that's what annihilationism says. 
And then third, option C, is to deny hell altogether, which even some Christians will. They'll say that books about hell, including the Bible, belong on the same shelf as books about vampires and werewolves and Harry Potter. It's just fiction. It's just myth. It's just legend. Just a man-made idea. But understand if that's what you're tempted to, to go with, to option number three, to avoid believing in hell is to play the most high-stakes gamble of your life. It is to play Russian roulette with your soul. And also understand that not believing in hell doesn't change the reality of it. Just because you say you don't believe in hell doesn't negate the Bible's teaching that this is a reality. And, and your, your, your disbelief in hell doesn't lower the temperature down there one degree. The Bible says hell is a place and it says that it is real. So let's look at seven characteristics of hell. Uh, seven characteristics of hell. Seven horrors of hell. We're going to look at four this morning and then three tonight. Uh, these two sermons are going to be topical, and so we're not going to be going through a single passage of Scripture, which is what you guys normally do and what you're used to, but instead we're going to uh, look at all the, the puzzle pieces that are scattered throughout the Bible to put together a, a full picture of the doctrine of hell. So this first characteristic of hell, hell is described as eternal fire. Eternal fire. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Revelation twenty fifteen, And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As we've been talking about hell for a few minutes now, you may have imagined a picture of what it's going to be like in hell. And probably the predominant image in your head is that of fire. And you would be absolutely right. Scripture repeatedly describes hell as a place of fire. But what's different about this fire is that it is eternal. It never ends. All fires that we've encountered, kitchen fires, bonfires, campfires, even the, the biggest wildfires that California has ever known, all eventually go out. But here in hell, we have, Mark 9, 43, an unquenchable fire. Sinners are thrown into an unquenchable fire because their sin deserves unquenchable punishment. Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I notice in that verse, you have parallelism, eternal punishment versus eternal life. Uh, these parallels show that both punishment for the wicked and life for the righteous will be without end. Our souls are eternal, and after this life, our souls are separated from our bodies, and they will spend eternity either eternally living or eternally perishing. 
C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Uh, interesting thought, right? You have never met a mere mortal. Uh, every person that you have ever interacted with, had a conversation with, uh, played a board game with, worked with, uh, all the babies that we have at this church, we're all immortals. Our souls are engineered out of the stuff of eternity. And here we read that sinners who die in their sins, who, who do not come to faith in Christ, these will enter into an eternity of punishment, uh, specifically an eternal fire. Uh, I remember taking a tour of a volcano in Hawaii. Uh, we hiked to the top of this volcano, and I remember at the very center of the volcano, there was smoke coming out, billowing. And I had a thought, hmm, should we be here? <laughs> you know, I came here for vacation. Why are we here? And I remember the tour guide telling us how the lava inside this volcano could reach 1,800 degrees. And she went on to tell us how uh, scientists do their best, but really, we can't really predict when a volcano will erupt. It can go off at any time. Again, I'm thinking, okay, should we be here? Is this really the wisest thing? And I remember walking on this uh, shiny black volcanic surface and probably just an inch underneath the volcanic rock was this glowing orange lava flowing. And I remember the tour guide saying, yeah, you probably don't want to stand in one place for too long because it might melt your shoes. And I'm like, okay, let's leave. Like, why are we here? Let's go down where it's safe and where my shoes won't melt and we can get some shaved ice or something. Well, when we read about the, the horrors of hell described as eternal fire, uh, we are right to be disturbed. We are right to tremble. Imagine being right there in the very center of that volcano. And I mean, come on, like being burned alive has to be one of the worst ways to go out, right? But then for those that have had the, the severe misfortune of being burned alive, at least death comes as a relief. At least it, it ends at some point. But here we read about unquenchable fire. We read about people who will be thrown into the lake of fire and that relief never comes. Death never comes as a relief. And so this is absolutely horrific. And, and we could stop right here. And know that you just don't want to be there. This is, this is some place you want to avoid at all costs. But... We have six more characteristics of hell. Uh, George Whitfield uh, says this. Consider the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages at the end of which souls will begin to realize they are no closer to the end than when they first begun. They will never, ever 
be delivered from that place. You see, once a soul enters through the portals of hell, there are no grounds for appeal. Uh, There is no hope of release. The judge has slammed his gavel. Your case is closed forever. There are no exit signs in hell. There are no doors. There are no windows. This is eternal. Let's move on to our second description. And it, it is God's absence. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. Hell is the absence of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, uh, 8 to 9 reads this, dealing out rep- retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Here we have the opposite of what makes heaven so great. Remember, we talked about last night how what makes heaven great primarily isn't the sinless body that you have. It isn't being reunited with loved ones, family and friends who died in Christ. It's not being able to chill with Moses and hang out with Paul and ask him, hey, what do those hard parts in Romans really mean? That's not the best part. Streets of gold, not the best part. The best part of heaven is that you are with God in a closer, more intimate relationship than ever before, and he cannot be taken away from you. The presence of God is the best part, the very centerpiece of heaven. I remember Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Finally, once for all, the the dwelling place of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men. He will be our God and we will be his people. But in hell, God does not dwell with people. He does not tabernacle among those people. He will not be their God, and they will not be his people. Rather, they are banished away from him. The fountain of life, the fountain of joy, they will seek him, but he will not be found. They will call upon him, but he will not be near. The parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22 calls us to imagine being invited to a wedding and then getting kicked out. So imagine you're at your your best friend's wedding and you're the maid of honor. You are the the best man. And it's just uh, the dream wedding. Everything is perfect. The decor is perfect. Uh, Family and friends are there. Uh, The food is perfect, and you just look forward to a whole night of celebration with your best friend and with a lot of people that are near and dear to your heart. But then, from the mic, it's made public. You don't belong. You're not supposed to be here. And so, you're out. And you are escorted out, and you peer in through a window. You see the celebration. You see everything going on. You see your best friend so joyful 
and everyone around him or her joyful, but you are on the outside. And that's an illustration of the experience of those in hell. And not only are they banished from the glories of heaven and the joy that will be found in heaven, they're banished first and foremost, and most importantly, and most heartbreakingly, away from God, their creator. So hell is the absence of God. But then number three, God's presence. What? Is that a typo? Uh, What is going on here? Let's talk about number three, God's presence. Revelation 14.10. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 10 pictures the wrath of God as a cup of wine in full strength, as it says. The undiluted, unmixed, full blast of God's wrath. Uh, You must drink it down and drain the entire cup. Just a really awful image. This bitter cup that you have to that you're force-fed to drink down until the very last drop. But then we read something interesting at the end of the verse. We read that those in hell will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Here we read that Jesus, the Lamb, along with angels, are present in hell. Jesus is the ultimate judge of men. Every person who has ever lived will stand before Jesus and give an account for how they live their life. And if they did not place their faith in him, if they did not cling to him for salvation, then he will banish them to hell. He will be their judge. But whether they knew it or not, he will be there waiting for them. And he will use fire and brimstone to execute his judgment on them. So Jesus is not only judge, he is also executioner. Jesus is there in the presence of those suffering. Well, how does that work? Uh, Hell is the absence of God, and yet also the presence of Jesus, who is God, Well, this is certainly a mysterious truth, uh, one that we can't fully grasp. I know that I don't. But I think the best that we can say is God is present in heaven to bless. And God is present in hell to punish. God is present in heaven to bless. God is present in hell to punish. God's presence to bless, love, fellowship is in heaven. Uh, God's presence to curse, punish, and torment is in hell. In other words, God is present in heaven in all the ways that you want him to be, and he is present in hell in all the ways that you don't want him to be. God is truly omnipresent. He really is everywhere. And so the psalmist in Psalm 139 was right. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So do you see how this raises the stakes? 
for the non-Christian. It's not that you reject Jesus and then you never have to see him again. No, you're in his presence for all eternity and he is bringing about judgment, bringing about the wrath of God through fire and brimstone. He is executing the wrath of God upon you. And so you don't get to escape your judge. You don't get to escape the one that you rejected and stiff-armed for your entire life. No, you face him. You, you look him in the eye and you receive punishment from him. Now, the fact that Jesus is called the lamb here only reminds us that those who face his wrath were those who rejected his sacrifice, who rejected him as the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is there in hell, but he's not there as a shepherd, not there as a redeemer, not there as your advocate. He is there as judge and executioner. And that leads us to, to number four, this next characteristic, and that is conscious torment that Jesus himself administers in hell. Conscious torment. You are conscious. You are fully alert, fully awake to receive this torment. Uh, Matthew 13, 41 to 42. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, both signs of pain. The pain so excruciating that tears squeeze out of your eyes and also this grinding of the teeth excruciating pain from the eternal flames, remorse over not coming to Jesus during your lifetime, misery knowing you're never going to get a second chance, anguish from separation from God, but also direct punishment from Jesus. All of this pain amounts to something so great that you're grinding your teeth. In a parable, Jesus tells about a rich man who went to hell and a poor man named Lazarus who went to heaven. And in this parable, Jesus imagines what it would be like if the rich man in hell could look up to heaven and see Lazarus there. And this is just a portion of the story. Luke sixteen twenty-three to 24. In Hades, he, that is the, the rich man, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Lazarus. Uh, the poor man is now in heaven, and he's in Abraham's bosom. Uh, this figurative language simply meaning that he is in Abraham's presence. He's at Abraham's side. He's with Abraham and all the saints of old. And then the rich man, on the other hand, is down in hell, and he cries out for mercy. He cries out to, to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
Verse 23 says he's in torment. Verse 24 says he's in agony in this flame. And so he wants mercy. And what, what does he want out of this? Uh, what kind of mercy does he want? He wants Lazarus, who's in heaven, to dip just the tip of his finger into water and place that tiny drop of water onto his tongue so that he can have just a moment of relief. Can I just have that? No. Not even a temporary moment of relief. And you read on in the parable, and we learn that there is a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell. An infinite grand canyon between heaven and hell that you cannot leap over one side to the other. There is a, a barrier that you simply cannot cross. Abandon all hope. Ye who enter here. This is bad. Uh, this is real conscious torment. For the rich man in the parable and those in hell, relief from the fire, relief from the wrath of God never comes. And then Revelation fourteen eleven passage we already looked at and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest day and night their torment goes on forever and ever those in hell have no rest day or night insomnia is one of the most frustrating experiences i don't know if you ever had it you might have had a slight case of it last night first night at retreats always tough on the new bed and everything but you're just tossing and turning and all you want to do is fall asleep, but you're looking at the clock and the time is ticking away. If you got it really bad, then you start to see the sun peek over the horizon. The sky starts to get light. You know, maybe you've had an injury or something where it's so painful that you just can't sleep. Insomnia is bad. And that's the picture we get here in Revelation 14, 11. They have no rest day or night. Wanting rest so bad, but that rest never comes. So you see how these verses are incompatible with annihilationism. Uh, these verses annihilate annihilationism. Remember, annihilationism says, poof, you're gone, out of existence, snuffed out like a candle. And others, in a similar attempt to air condition the doctrine of hell, say, okay, hell does exist, but, you know, really it's going to be more like a dream. Really going to be more like a, a surreal experience. So you're not going to really feel the fire, this dreamlike state, so the pain and the anguish of hell, it won't seem very real. That's what some people want to say to kind of soften the blow, but we just don't get a soft blow here. We get a punch to the face. When we read about the doctrine of hell, read these verses at face value. And the only conclusion you can come to is that hell is conscious torment. Hell is being burned with fire. Hell is getting no rest day and night. Hell is Jesus administering judgment on you for all eternity. And we see that annihilationism is simply man's idea and man's attempt to change what scripture says to make it less offensive uh, we have to let scripture speak for itself. And here it speaks of horrific things. 
It speaks of entering into a world completely devoid of grace. Uh, we, we can't read these words and be unmoved. Uh, we, we can't read these words and think that this has no application to my life now. And tonight we'll get into some more specific application. But for right now, let's go, go with the obvious one. Uh, stick with the obvious application of this. And this is just you don't want to be there, right? You don't want to be there. So know where you stand before God. Ha- have you sat down with him to truly do business? To, to forsake your sin and cling to him as your only hope in this life and the life to come. Today is the day of grace. You don't have to be there. Uh, there is still time. The clock has not struck midnight. Uh, Jonathan Edwards imagines a time when people are in hell and there's no more time. The bell has tolled. It's over. He, he um, preaches a sermon called The Preciousness of Time and the importance of redeeming it. Uh, It's not one of his more famous sermons. His more famous one is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he preached this other sermon on the preciousness of time. And it's a really good sermon, highly recommend it. It talks about how time is life's most valuable commodity. You can always make more money. You can always buy more stuff. Uh, You can always even make new friends. But once time is spent, it is gone. And at one point in the sermon, he imagines what happens when time is gone for the unbeliever. This is what he says. Fourth, consider what a value we we may conclude is set upon time by those who are past the end of it. What thoughts do you think they have of its preciousness? who have lost all their opportunity for obtaining eternal life and are gone to hell. Though they were very lavish of their time while they lived and set no great value upon it, yet how have they changed their judgments? How would they value the opportunity which you have if they might but have it granted to them What would they not give for one of your days under the means of grace? For those in hell, their time has run out. And Jonathan Edwards describes the covetousness that they have of your time, what they wouldn't give for one more day. They could just take a day of your time. And so here we see that we should think of time as precious And it's precious because this is our opportunity to repent and come to God. Uh, If you're not a Christian here today, you're breathing. Your heart's beating. You have time. Will you use it to come to faith in Jesus Christ? To pray to God and earnestly ask him to reveal where you stand before him. And if you find that you are without faith, to learn what you need to learn about faith by by asking a spiritual leader here, talking to a pastor, looking into the word, and know for sure that the faith that you have is a genuine one, that it is saving 
faith. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And for those of us who are in the faith and we have confidence and conviction that Jesus has saved my soul, uh, this is a heartbreaking sermon, but at the same time, joy should run parallel to the sadness. Because everything in this sermon doesn't apply to you. Oh, it should have. Oh, it should have. You are a sinner, and you're saved only by grace. You deserve the flames of hell. But Jesus snatched you from your hell-bound race, turned you around, turned you into a follower of God. And your life was never the same. And you avoided all of this punishment that was rightly due you. Jesus paid it all for you on your behalf, as your substitutes. And so, uh, as Christians, we should walk away here praising God for his grace because we narrowly escaped judgment. Imagine that you are a death row criminal and the day of your execution has come. You did it. You know you're guilty. And so you finally get your just desserts. And so you get your your last meal upon your request. It's delicious, exactly what you wanted. But then as you finish off that meal, that last bite turns to ash. Because it's time to go. A guard calls you out of the jail cell and you're led out to the yard. And there you see ten soldiers with rifles and you are about to be executed. And the captain of the guard then puts a blindfold on you and counts down. Five. Four. You hear the guns cock. Three. Two. One. Nothing. The next thing you know, you feel the captain of the guard taking that blindfold off, and you hear him say, you're free. Go on. Walk on out of here. You're free. That is the experience of every Christian. And in that scenario, your heart is still thumping in your chest. It's thumping hard. Thumping out of gratefulness, but also thumping out of fear, knowing that you narrowly escaped judgment. And as Christian, as a Christian, you, you narrowly escaped your just condemnation. And it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ, only through the cross of Calvary, that is your only hope. And so our hearts thump in our chest, knowing that this is the case, but they thump also with great excitement and great joy, knowing that we are saved and saved eternally. Now let's bow a word of prayer and praise God for the gospel. Father, we we praise you for the good news this morning that uh, these verses on hell do not apply to us. That we have escaped judgment, though we deserve to partake in it, 
for all eternity. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son that you did not spare, but freely gave him over to us. And uh, we praise you, God, that uh, we can declare along with Paul that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we are shielded by him, that he drank down the cup of wrath for us. And we say thank you 10,000 times. Thank you. We could never thank you enough for the gospel. So Lord, I pray that we would treasure it, that we would hold it dear to our hearts, that we would never forget what we have been saved from. And I pray that this would result in a lifetime of praise, a lifetime of joy, of never getting over the amazement of the gospel so that you get the glory that you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.